I'm Ben Fote, and this is another episode of What's the Deal, Grosiel? A podcast that explores the history, people, and things that make Grosiel unique. Today's episode is looking at an island oddity, the Wonderwell. Today I'm speaking with Stephen J. Fry. Stephen's an author of two other books about downriver landmarks, The Uniroyal Tire Along I-94, I bet you've seen, and The Trenton A&W That's Now Elizabeth Perk. Thanks for speaking with me, Stephen. Since I came to Grosiel after the building was torn down, I only had heard or have seen vague references to the Wonderwell. Um, you're writing a book about it. Tell me about yourself and how that brings you to writing about what it was probably the island's claim to fame for decades. Oh, thanks. Uh, thanks for having me, Ben. Yeah, I grew up in Trenton. So I spent uh, my formative years in Trenton. I only spent a few years away from Michigan um, shortly after uh, my wife and I were married. Uh, she's from Trenton as well. And, uh, and we've been back uh, since 1992 uh, in the area. But uh, growing up in Trenton, uh, Wonderwell was the kind of thing that uh, kids would go to when they were big enough to go to it on their own. Uh, I had uh, good friends of mine. Uh, we would take a bicycle trip, usually the last full day of summer vacation every year, over to the island to get our fireworks. Uh, we also would make a stop at it's gone now, but Mahalik's Pets Shop, if uh, any of the old timers remember that, they would sell model rocket supplies. So that oh. was uh, fun for us. <laughs> yeah. And then, of course, we would stop at that A&W. So it was kind of like, uh, again, tradition every year. We'd uh, head over to the island, get our fireworks, get our model rocket stuff in Trenton and uh, a- uh, A&W root beer. So as a, as a kid, especially boys, it was more of a boy thing than a girl thing, I would think but stocking up on smoke bombs, flash powders, firecrackers if he had them cuz uh, didn't always didn't always have them cuz at the time you couldn't buy firecrackers legally. So but sometimes he had them. Uh, he made his own uh, a few of his own products and uh, they are still the best. People still talk about how good those smoke bombs were. They were fantastic. And at a quarter apiece you can't beat it. <laughs> so so you'd go over there for fireworks. That's interesting. How does that connect to the the well? Well, it actually had zero connection to the well itself, even though that the well had a high sulfur content in the water. A lot of people thought, oh, that's how he makes the fireworks. But they really had nothing to do with that. The well was a mistake. Um, it, uh, they were drilling for oil back in the day and struck the uh, artesian well instead. But the gentleman who ran uh, the business for many, many years, uh, Don Swan was his name, Donald Swan, uh, he was the son of the um, original owner of the of the property, and um, when the water business, they used to sell the water itself as a, a curative elixir or snake oil or whatever you might want to call it. Uh, when that business kind of waned in the late '60s, early '70s, Don used his uh, talents as a chemical engineer to start making fireworks, and the business shifted from selling water. To selling fireworks, it was, uh, I guess you'd say, a survival mode <laughs> to keep the keep the family going. Oh wow! If I if I remember right, then they had they had sort of an exclusive license on making fireworks at some point. They had, um, well, they were grandfathered in. The property might actually still be grandfathered in, so they had a fireworks um, license. I don't know if it's still valid. It's kind of like a liquor license, you know, okay. you sell the property. But now that the building is gone, that may have that may have evaporated. I don't know. I'm I'm not I'm not up on the on the legal aspects of fireworks sales. 
Yeah, but, and uh, and where was where was the well at? It was at the south end of the of the island. So basically, it was um, oh near the airport. But I think it was off of South Point. Just a it was uh, yeah, uh, exactly. It was uh, it was off of South Point. So so keep in mind the entire south end. So Grow, it's either mm-hmm. Grow Street or Grow Road. I, I can't remember. Grow Road, yeah. Obviously named after the Grow family. Uh, they owned everything south of Row, including okay. what is now the airport. Sure. So uh, the Swan family, that's who came to be known as the owners of the Wonderwell. Well, Mr. Swan married Mrs. Swan, or I'm sorry, Mrs. Grow, okay. <laughs> or, or Miss yeah. Grow at the time. So she was a Grow uh, family member. Her brothers had farms. She had the farm. So the Swan property actually started off as being the Grow property. Okay. And uh, so that entire section south of Grow was from the Grow family. So that would include the Ford Yacht Club and some of the other stuff. Oh, uh, everything. Yeah. yeah, yeah. At one time, um, that whole section was being developed as a uh, as a single uh, real estate development, and I don't know how far they got with it. I think it was around the the forties. I think the thirties or forties was when they were uh, trying to sell that as a new resort. Uh, it was called the Albemarle Colony. Okay. Yeah, there's and, still an Obamar Road down there. Yes, and that airport was built as a private airport for that real estate development. Oh, okay. So that was the the draw is that come to Albemarle Colony, buy your property here, and you get a private airport. Oh, that's that's pretty neat. Yeah, yeah. It could probably work that way now. Oh, sure, sure. It went to the military, and then then you know it's no longer military. So yeah, you know, what comes around goes around. Yeah, see, I grew up. Um, I grew up in Union County, Ohio, just northwest of Columbus. And there's a there's a town in the county called Magnet, Magnetic Springs, and I think it had a, an artisan well very similar to that. But they built they built spas and hotels. So is that sort of what that that community was going to d- develop into? No, not really. They did not play up the well um, as being a benefit for the, the community uh, like that. There was um, mention of the well in some of the advertising that I found for the real estate, but that was really not a big draw. It was not promoted as a spa type of endeavor. The artesian wells that were discovered and popular in the Mount Clemens area in Michigan, mm-hmm. uh, those were promoted as a spa and there were several spas that were open and they promoted the the health benefits of their water as far as, you know, bathing in it. And, you know, as an external curative, things like that. They called them the Mount Clemens mineral baths. Hmm. Uh, but in Grozeal, it was the selling of the water to drink it. And I don't know if you've ever had sulfur-rich water, but it tastes about as bad as it sounds and smells. <laughs> yeah, um, I don't think that's something I'd go looking for. And, well, you know, it's funny is I looked into that and it was being promoted as its health benefits. You know, AIDS and digestion and, you know, all these other things. It's good for your kidneys. And there's no evidence that it was good or bad. What would happen is that people would see a difference in their, let's say, their digestion. Sure. uh, When they started drinking it. And then you'd see a difference when you stopped drinking it. So it really didn't have an effect one way or another other than it kind of changed your cycles. Uh, and then, like I said, as soon as you stopped drinking it, you went back to, to where you were before or so it, it, it did no harm, but it also did no good. Yeah. So I guess we skipped over what an artisan well actually is. So does that, does that well then eat out of like Lake Erie water or the Detroit river water? 
No, an artesian well, from from what I'm <laughs> again, I'm not an expert on wells either, uh, mm-hmm. but it's just basically it's a large pocket of underground water that uh, would be filled in, you know, porous material. Uh, it would be saturated with water, and the pressure from the ground above pressing down on that uh, is what then increases the pressure of the of the water pocket. And so when you tap into it, like they did that all that all that pressure then uh, pushes the water to the surface. Okay. Sometimes it just pushes it to the surface and you have like a pond or a lake. But in the case of what became known as the Wonder Well, um, it actually would shoot it up into the air. Okay. And uh, at, at one time when it was first tapped, it, I think it went up to like maybe 10, 20 feet in the air. Oh, wow. Um, and when I was a kid in the 70s going to visit it, it had you know, greatly slowed down and there's pictures of it maybe shooting up maybe two feet out of the ground. But at one time it was uh, considered uh, the highest flowing artesian well east of the Mississippi. I don't know what it was west of the Mississippi, but east of the Mississippi, Mm -hmm. uh, it had the largest uh, gallons per minute output. Uh, I don't have those numbers in front of me, but yeah. uh, And and it even made it into uh, Ripley's, believe it or not. As well, as a wonder, you know, believe it or not, you know this, big, <laughs> you know, twenty, you know, twenty foot geyser coming up out of the well, uh, water, or uh, out of the ground by itself. I'm honestly surprised that it didn't turn into some sort of, uh, you know, some sort of spa tourist destination. Well, it, uh, it kind of was a tourist destination for the sale of the water. And again, they they took a different approach. Yeah. Rather than building an establishment that you came to, spent time and left, what they did instead was they sold the water. So huh. they that family actually became very wealthy selling water. They went from farming to selling, you know, farming water basically. Sure. And turned it into a big business because then they got hooked into distributors. Sure. So there, I found advertising that uh, you could buy the one. The, they went through several names over the years. They called it Wonder Water. Then they called it the Wonder Well, the Wonder Well Water. It's all all different, you know, versions of the of the Wonder was in there, but. You could have bought that and had it shipped to you, uh, either directly or through different distributors. So the, uh, not unlike buying bottled water today, nobody bought water back in the day. You didn't you didn't buy bottled water to just to have bottled water like they do now. Sure. Um, so this was special water, and that's what they chose to do. Rather than you know build infrastructure and and have people come and spend time, they shipped water out. Not unlike a farm. You know, people don't come to farms to, you know, see the green beans growing, uh, <laughs> but you buy the green beans <laughs> somehow. Now, now, my father actually has done a trip that, that just went to fields to see the green beans. <laughs> so it, I've gone it, to pick blueberries and I, I <laughs> couldn't wait to not be picking blueberries. I, I, that doesn't do anything for me. Yeah. The, uh, so, so you mentioned that they, they stopped um, the, the, so the well ran dry. Well, it ran dry much, much, much later than, than when they stopped uh, selling it. So the well didn't run dry until the 90s, okay. but it was sometime in the 60s that interest in that well water waned. Okay. People weren't as interested in it. There were a lot more people going out and say other interests. Uh, when, when interstates came, came to be, sure. people would drive to different places and there just was not the interest to drive down to, I say down because the majority, majority of the customers most likely came from the Detroit area. Sure. The interest just wasn't there anymore. So it, it was, I don't want to say it was a fad, but maybe that's what it was. Maybe it was well, more of a it sounds like that's about the time Bob Lowe Island was big. So sure. Sure. And so, you know, the, the interest just wasn't there. 
and from what I can tell. So in order to survive, when you when you've you know been selling water since the 1910s up until the 1970s, and then people don't want to buy your water anymore, you shift gears. Sure. You know? So that's I guess that's when it went to fireworks. Yeah, the 21st century word for that would be pivot. Then right. Sure. Sure. Yeah. So so Don Swan, the 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 people call him the old man. Uh, well, he was two when the when the well was was struck. Huh. So he he you know his life revolved around that, that oh, yeah. farm and that property. So you know at two years old uh, the the well was struck and his father started selling water. Well, in the nineteen seventies, you know he's you know late you know he's in his late sixties, uh, early seventies. Uh, that's when he shifted gears and uh, started selling uh, fireworks instead. Uh, wow. He was a very inventive man. Uh, you know to look at him, you know he was very unassuming. Uh, but uh, a very, uh, very smart guy. He was a, like I said, a chemical engineer. He went to U of M. He, uh, he played football. He was a football star uh, back in, you know, whatever that was, the 20s. Right? Sure. And, you know, came back and worked, you know, worked his family's business. And uh, when it came time to shift gears, you know, he did what he knew. He knew, he knew chemical engineering and uh, he, he developed fireworks. He was also an inventor of other things. He had several patents uh, for games related to, um, I know he had a board game hmm. that he developed. I know he had a couple of patents for golf items, like a golf club and huh. methods for seating, uh, you know, golf courses, things like that. So, uh, he was a tinkerer and, uh, I remember, oh, I'm, I was probably 10 or 12 and he was selling a little, uh, toy that he had come up with where it was nothing more than, than a stick of wood. So it was like a, like a one by one or a two by two mm-hmm. that, on one end of it, he had some nuts and bolts that uh, had gone through the piece of wood. It had a plastic cup on the end of it. And what you did was you packed it full of those old flat caps. You know, remember the, the caps that you had with a gun? It came in a roll. Yeah. So it was a red roll of caps, right? Right. So what you do is you'd cut up the caps, stick them in this tube, and then he had like a little, uh, little rocket, uh, you know, little thing made out of wood. Anyways, what you do is you smacked it on a rock or you smacked it on, a, on, on the ground. And that impact then ignited the caps and it shot this little rocket up into the air. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he just came up with that on his own. And yeah. I think he sold them for like 2 $3, something like that. And it was, uh, I, I bought one. I don't know what the heck happened to it, you know, but that, you know, I was 10 years old at the time. Yeah. I thought it was neat, you know. Yeah. And I think I bought it more because he invented it than, sure. than some great toy. I just <laughs> thought it was neat that here's this guy on Grozeal that came up with this thing that you smack on a rock and it, and it lit off a rocket. I thought it was kind of neat. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds uh, really safe too. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, thanks for for talking about the well. Um, you've sure. written at least two other books about about attractions in the in the area. What have you? What are what are those books? Well, the my first book actually. Uh, let me back up a little bit. I'll, I'll toot my own horn here. My first book was a how to book on using computer aided design software. That that's my bread and butter. That's what I do is uh, design work, and so I wrote a book on. Uh, how to use the particular software that I use. And then I wrote a book on making your own caskets and coffins. <laughs> Again, I was, uh, I'm a maker, you know, by my, by in general and a tinkerer. And I had an idea for selling caskets, but it turns out that, well, that's probably not the best business model because how many can you possibly sell? So instead I turned my plans into a book that you could buy. But then I just happened to be on Facebook. I, I'm not a big fan of Facebook as far as, it's benefit truly for being social as people call it social media. Sure. 
But I like Facebook for being able to make connections, find people, find uh, maybe uh, you know a high school friend that you haven't talked to in a long time, things like that. Sure. And I was on one of the Facebook pages uh, that was devoted to Trenton, or maybe it was Trenton High School. I don't remember which. Mm-hmm. And somebody was talking about the A&W there. And people would say things as if it were fact. <laughs> and obviously, they didn't know the facts. And I actually worked there for two seasons. That was my first job was at the A&W. So when people would say things as if they know what they're talking about, and it was obvious that they didn't, that's just like a pet peeve of mine. It's like, well, wait a minute. That that had nothing to do with that A&W. That's not true at all. Sure. Um, there was a rumor that, you know, one of the things, you had to be Catholic in order to work there. <laughs> and back in the day, you could say things like that. And I know for a fact that wasn't true. It turns out that the owners of that A&W at the time their kids went to Gabriel Richard, which is a Catholic high school. Sure. And so when the kids knew that, hey, mom and dad need help at the restaurant, they would ask their friends, hey, you want to come work at my, my parents' restaurant? Well, who are their friends going to be? They're going to be fellow Catholics. Right. It's just who you know. And so, yes, there were a lot of Catholic high school kids that worked there, but it wasn't because they were Catholic. It's because they were friends of the owner's kids. Sure. And so when people say, oh, you had to be Catholic to work there, it's like, well, I worked there and I know that's not true. <laughs> and then they would say something else. You know, somebody would say something else. Like, sure. well, again, not true. Again, not true, not true, not true. So having worked there, I thought, well, maybe I want to find out what actually is true. What is the real history of it? I knew some of it because I had worked there, uh-huh. uh, but I didn't know the complete history. So then I thought, well, I'm going to learn everything there is to know about this place. The true history starting from day one. And uh, I just set about to, to learn what the history was. My goal was not to write a book. My goal was to maybe write a newspaper article. And then, well, maybe I'll write something for a magazine. And when I was all said and done, I had more than double the amount of words that any magazine would ever publish. <laughs> sure. And I thought, oh, man, now, again, what did I, what did I do? I wasted all this time and I, I wrote the complete history. Now what do I do with it? And then I realized, well... I've released books in the past. Again, the computer-aided design book, how to make your own caskets. Well, I'll just turn it into a book. And that's how it ended up being a book about the first A&W in Michigan. Yeah. And then the other one's the Uniroyal Tire. The Uniroyal Tire. Oh, well, actually, uh, after I finished the A&W book, I, I, was, I wouldn't say I was on a roll, uh, but I thought, well, what, uh, what other history and plain sight kind of things uh, do we wanna, do I wanna, maybe want to explore? And so I had the idea to do the Wonderwell uh, book uh, next. Okay. And having, having done the A&W book, I knew that a book like that, you can't get very far without cooperation from, uh, for lack of a better term, an insider. So okay. I had, I had worked with one of the previous owners of the A&W, actually a woman that I worked for. Uh, I had reached out and contact, you know, found her online. Uh, she, she filled in a lot of blanks for me. So I realized I need to be able to be speaking to somebody who actually knows so Don Swan, the, the gentleman who owned it for all those years and ran it, his son, James, who also worked there for many, many years, uh, he's an environmentalist now and an author himself. I knew that I needed to basically be on board with James and get in touch with James and get his buy off on the idea and get his input. Otherwise, I'm a lot of it is just guesswork. And then I'm no sure. better than the people on Facebook at that point. <laughs> right. So I was not very successful in getting a hold of James. <laughs> I have since, but 
I was kind of hitting a lot of roadblocks in uh, getting James to r- respond back to me. So then I thought, well, while I'm waiting on James, um, is there something else I can do? And I, I, I happened to drive past that giant tire every day on the way to work. And it kind of piqued my curiosity again because of social media, because people would say, oh, it was this, it was that. And they would throw something out there and it's like, well, obviously I don't know anything about the tire. I know that's not true. You know, it's like, (laughs) come on people. And even the things that are true about it are kind of unbelievable. Yeah. So I thought, well, that, that would probably be a good topic to debunk the urban uh, legends, learn everything there is to know about it. And I was actually surprised with a lot of stuff that I found out. I spent 13 months researching it. It's one of those things where it's kind of like, you know, that you've got the ancient pyramids in, in Egypt it was a great civilization. And then all of a sudden, poof, uh, nobody knows anything about it. And it's only been recent history that the people are rediscovering it. So there was a huge gap where it was a giant mystery. It's because the history was, was lost. It was, uh, I found out later, you know, I, I did a little bit of research actually on the pyramids. At one point, one of the pharaohs killed off all of the priests and they were the ones that were the keepers of the knowledge. Sure. So when he killed off the historians, he also killed off the history. Hmm. So the same thing happened with the giant tire. It, uh, there oh, was no. a, that there was a period of time. Well, there was a period of time where the company changed hands. Uh-huh. Um, it was us rubber, which turned into Uniroyal. Uh-huh. And then it, there was a joint venture with uh, B of Goodrich. And then it went into just a private investment company. And then it was picked up by Michelin. So okay. Uniroyal is owned by Michelin. Some point during that transition, the company or companies lost or intentionally destroyed everything there is to know about that tire. <laughs> and I, I think it was uh, when the engineers uh, were told, here's my guess. They, they were a New York based company, even though we had a sales office here in Michigan, it was still a New York based company. And at one point, all the engineers, everybody who knew everything about that tire and the business were ordered, said, you're going to Detroit and you're going to work at either the sales office in Allen Park or the downtown factory that's uh, there by, you know, used to be there over by Belle Isle. And my guess is that was when the history was lost. I, I, I think people either tossed everything in the dumpster or they said, I'm not taking this stuff with me. We don't need it anymore. They threw it away or just out of spite, they, they threw it out or, or whatever. But that was, that was my guess is when, when all that information was lost. Yeah. And, uh, and I'm, I'm rediscovering it. <laughs> So the book on the Wonderwell, how's the progress going? You said it, you had a, sort of a delay in getting taught and into reconnecting with the Swan family. Yeah, I, uh, I was going hot and heavy for a while. Um, I spent uh, some time at the Historical Museum. Uh, the Historical Society has been uh, very helpful, uh, gave me access to anything I wanted there. It's kind of one of these things where since it is a hobby, it's, it's not my full-time job. Um, my interests, uh, you know, you got peaks and valleys, <laughs> Right. the interest and uh, other things uh, kind of creep in there and take over. And, you know, people talk about 2020 uh, being a horrible year for oh a lot of different reasons. For my family, 2020 was, I, yeah, I don't, I don't want to get into you know, all the specifics of it, but 2020 started off really bad. Uh, this whole coronavirus thing, geez, that, that was the least of our worries. I mean, we, mm-hmm. had, uh, we had a really, really bad January and mm-hmm. that pretty much drove, you know, halted all, all of my all of my activities uh, for things like that, but I'm slowly getting back into it again, and it's one of those things where it is a hobby. So and it's not going anywhere because it's gone. <laughs> right. So, so now it's just a a race to you know be able to talk to people who still have memories of it before they're gone. 
Sure. And speaking of that, your website is still collecting the stories and photos and all that. So if somebody has some information that they didn't find online, we, um, if you read the website, it's very explicit. Yeah. You know, anything's been found online has already been found. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. But, but if anybody has some home photo albums that have photos from that or, or stories, uh, how do they get in touch with you? It's very easy. You can just go to www.wonderwell.info. So Wonderwell is all one word. Once you're there, there is a form that you can fill in to basically just to make contact. That's all we really need to, to get going. You don't have to do anything special. I, I do accept photos uh, from that website. Making the contact is the most important thing. Sure. So once we make contact, we can go from there. You brought it up. That's what I'm looking for. I'm not looking for something that someone found on Google. Because trust me, if it's on Google or if it can be found that way, I have found it. I promise you I've found it. But what I'm looking for are private photos. Let's say your family did go to Wonderwell in the 1940s because it was a family thing to do. And now you've got grandma's photo album in your closet and you're flipping through there and there's some nice black and white photos of grandma and aunt so-and-so standing next to this goofy looking well. (laughs) Well, that was probably Wonderwell and uh, I'd like to see those pictures, you know. Those probably should come up in some of the the World War II books too, or uh, the photo albums. Absolutely. I mean, I, I check estate sales all the time because it's amazing some of the, the personal photos that turn up at estate sales. Sure. So I'm looking for that. And then stories of not necessarily, hey, we used to go to Wonderwell. I rode my bike. <laughs> well, okay. I, I get that. And everybody kind of gets that. But I'm looking more for, well, I had a conversation with Mr. Swan and he said this, you know, that that's more of the stories that I'm looking for. Maybe he caught you uh, stealing fireworks. I want to hear that story too. <laughs> you know, maybe you got in trouble because you lit off the fire, the smoke bomb at Trenton High School and filled up the corridor, which happened many times. You know, stories like that is, is more what I'm looking for. But but any any story or picture about family about the uh, the well itself, uh, that's what I'm looking for. And for any of us that want to add this book to our bookshelves um, when it comes out, how what's the best way to keep keep in, in touch on that? Uh, the same way. Uh, so if you go to that website, there will be obviously announcements of, of when it's available. But then also you can find and follow us on Facebook. Same thing, just uh, search for Wonderwell, you'll find it. Uh, there was not a Wonderwell Facebook page because, boy, it, you know, it basically the stopped flowing in 1994. There was no Facebook then, obviously. Right. So I created one just for for the Wonderwell. And there's been a few people that have put up some pictures, which is nice. You know, those those are the kinds of things that we want to see. Oh, the other thing too is souvenirs. I have collected a few souvenirs like off of eBay and Craigslist, that type of thing. So again, it was a tourist destination. The little tchotchkes, the little ceramic salt and pepper shakers that the salt and pepper shaker had nothing to do with the well. Like it could be like a ceramic little tiger, (laughs) but it's got the Wonderwell sticker on it, you know, things like that. So I've collected a few of those. If anybody's got that kind of stuff, I don't necessarily want to take possession of that, but I would love to be able to to photograph it and include it in the book. There's a few of those kinds of items that are at the museum now, but it's amazing when I see something new that the museum doesn't have. I've never seen it before. You know, I, I try to acquire it or at least get a picture of it. T-shirts and uh, those old uh, felt pennants that, you know, people would put up on the wall. I've got a few of those uh, from over the years. Uh, again, it was, it was a tourist destination. And uh, a lot of people don't realize that now because it, it was so long ago. Yeah, I think now the, the space that that would have been at, I think it's been turned into housing, so... Yeah, the property sat um, vacant for a long time. James told me that the well, the well start, stopped flowing just at about the time his father passed away. 
it was within days. Wow. So he was he was in so, tune with that with that property. No doubt. And so I'm not exactly sure when they stopped when when he actually stopped selling fireworks, but you know, he was Oh, he died. He was 90 some years, 92 years old, I think. So he had stopped selling fireworks long before then. It sat empty for a, a, a long time. The building kind of fell apart and it was demolished a few years ago, finally. And then it sat again, vacant, just an empty lot for several years. But I, I do believe that there's, if there's not a house on there now, I know it's being built. This has been great. I, I really want to thank you for spending time with me today. At the end of every episode, I give our guests a chance to give a wish for Grosseal, and it can be for the people or the place or just the world in general. So do you have a wish to share with us? Well, I don't know how this is going to come off, <laughs> but again, I'm I'm from Trenton. You know, I grew up in Trenton, and uh, so Grosseal was, um, you know, a place you would go to for things like Wonderwell. Maybe to to eat at like maybe the one or two restaurants there, things like that. Sure. And it seemed like so many times over the years, the access to the island island became an issue. Oh, when <laughs> the free bridge is under construction, there's a lot of moaning and groaning, either from I, I don't I can't say from from an islander's point of view, but people from let's say you know the mainland or whatever you want to call it would then complain, oh, geez, I got to take the toll bridge, you know, things like that. So there, sure. it seems like there's always like a lot of heartburn um, associated with access to the island. So I guess my wish is, is maybe either people can get over that and just accept it <laughs> or improve it. This is Ben jumping in from the editing room floor. I just wanted to tell you that Stephen had a bit more to say about the bridge situation. He wasn't familiar with what we've experienced this year. He's, he lives up in Dearborn Heights. But I think we all hope that this series of repairs is the last necessary for quite some time. And now back to the interview. Thanks for, thanks for spending the time with me on this. I, sure. I really appreciate it. No problems. It's enjoyable. Thanks for having me on, Ben. I wanted to take another opportunity to thank Stephen J. Fry, the author of the upcoming Wonderwell book, Remember, you can get in touch with him through his website at wonderwell.info or his Wonderwell Facebook page. Another note is that we will have a transcript for this discussion, this conversation on our website. Just check the links in the notes with the podcast. What's the Deal Gross Eel is recorded and produced by me, Ben Fote. You can keep in touch with me through the What's the Deal Gross Eel Facebook page or email me at whatsthedealgi at gmail.com. You can share episodes from Facebook or hear them from the website whatsthedealgi.com. And of course, it never hurts to subscribe so you can get the latest episodes through your favorite podcast delivery tool like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Pocket Casts, and so many others. Our intro and credit music is Mocktails in the Rain by Anti Ludo which is used through a Creative Commons license. Find more of his music on soundclick.com as Anti's Instrumentals. Thanks for listening to What's the Deal, Grossiel? <laughs>